Hello and welcome to The Control and the Variable. My name is Sonia and I'm Sarah and together we are two postgraduate research students who have started a podcast to try and make research not only more fun but also more accessible to science people and non-science people. And hopefully we can share some funny stories along the way and some tips and tricks and we hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get started with today's episode. Okay, hello and welcome back to the Control and the Variable. This is episode 10. How exciting. We've gotten to 10 episodes, Sarah. 10 episodes, really? Yeah, we're on 10 episodes. This is really cool. Um, and so... That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank you to all of our listeners who have listened for, since episode one. Um, Sarah, do you want to start off with today's papers? Yeah, so today I wanted to talk about the COVID vaccine because it's been in the news a lot. Um, I think sometimes when science is reported in the news, it leaves out a lot of detail, so I just wanted to talk about it. And so everybody knows that there is a vaccine being developed by loads of companies. Uh, but the one I want to talk about is being developed by Pfizer. And so this week, which is the second week of November, Pfizer have announced some initial results from their phase three study. So the vaccine that Pfizer are testing uses mRNA from the virus that causes covid and using mRNA for a vaccine is a new technique developed in recent years, but it seems quite promising. So previous vaccines use like less dangerous versions of the virus, I guess, yeah. or like proteins to create an immune response. However, this is using mRNA. And some of the benefits of this is that it could be a lot cheaper and a lot easier to make than other types of vaccines. So if this vaccine does get FDA approval, it would be the first of its kind on the market. So the idea of the vaccine is that the mRNA will go into our cells, become translated into a protein, and that protein is normally expressed on the surface of the virus, and our immune system will recognise it and create an immune response. So that when we're exposed to the real COVID virus in the outside world, our bodies will recognise it and kill it a lot faster. So this vaccine also requires two doses. So within a couple of weeks of each other, you would need to go for a second booster shot. And so what were the initial results from this trial? Well, in a study involving more than 40,000 participants, so far it looks like there are no safety concerns, which is great. And apparently the vaccine is 90% effective. And I think a lot of people, including myself, got really excited by this because that sounds really good. However, if we look into that statistic in context, it appears to be a lot less sensational. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing to note is that the number that they got, 90% effectiveness, was calculated just one week after they had the second shot of the vaccine. So that 90% could decrease over time, like in the coming weeks, if they see more and more people who had the vaccine getting the coronavirus, it would make it less effective. And then 
Second of all, there's a lot of unknowns still. So, for example, we still have no idea how long immunity will last from this vaccine. So you could see it ending up being something you have to have yearly as like a booster if it doesn't produce a really long immune response. I think there are still a lot of positives to come out of this news, and I think we should all remain optimistic. As I mentioned before, these kind of vaccines are probably quicker and cheaper to make, which is exactly what we need for COVID. And as long as the effectiveness is over 50%, which they say they are confident of, it can still be considered effective enough to be approved. Nice. So it's still pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, like, we need to wait a bit longer to see what happens. Exactly. I feel like, you know, when you said, oh, 90% was like this amazing thing, and then it turned to be this kind of like less than amazing thing. I was like, that's just 2020, though, isn't it? Like, what what are we expecting? (laughs) I think we're gonna have to wait till 2021 for a good vaccine to come. Okay, cool. So, um... I have been watching a lot of um, TV recently because, yeah, books just aren't quite cutting it at the moment. And I had a look on BBC Four, and there is a documentary um, called Eugenics Science's Greatest Scandal. Um, so many of our listeners now may come to a conclusion that I'm obsessed with this topic. But um, the documentary was hosted by my favourite author, Angela Saini, and also a public figure and disability rights activist, Adam Pearson. Um, And I was really interested in watching it. Also, our guest from last episode, Diane, was posting a lot about it on Instagram, so I thought I'd check it out. Episode one is is one of two. Um, Episode one um, follows Angela and she goes to UCL that's University College London, to meet with Supadra Das, the curator of the Francis Galton archives. And she shows like so many weird things, like a range of glass eyes and hair sample scales. And these were made by a different scientist called uh, Eugen Fisher. But uh, Francis Galton would use them um, in order to determine race and beauty and of, of people who were around him. Um, in order, with the intention of making the prettiest people pair up and procreate in order to increase the quality of the race, because at the time he thought that intelligence was linked to attractiveness. And it gets creepier because he used to wear a glove, right? And then the thumb was like a needle, and then in the other four fingers was like a piece of paper. And so he would have his hand in his pocket, which is creepy enough, and watch people. And then he would, like, prick a different finger, depending on how pretty he found certain people. If that makes sense. So, like, he had a code of where he would prick the piece of paper. To... Yeah, that's so weird. It's... That's so creepy. It's so creepy. So this man was obsessed with like pretty women and getting them pregnant. That's ex- that's essentially what they were trying to tell us. And I was like, what a weirdo. And then they moved on and there's a guy called Carl Pearson. Pearson, you hear that name and you're like, what? Like the Pearson's coefficient and like statistics and stuff? Yes, the very same man. He carried out research on Jewish people in the East End of London to help differentiate them from other people there. And he visited, like, okay, creepy, 
he visited children's schools and he would like measure their intelligence and their physical ability and things like that and he published uh, stereotypes that essentially concluded with him saying that they were developing into a parasitic race and he helped perpetuate anti-semitism at the time and um, yeah that made me feel really uncomfortable watching but uh, he's it is quite funny because a lot of the scientists who they mention are people who we know for very different things and then you find out all along that they created these things because they were eugenicists and it's it's very very weird also marie stopes do you know who marie stopes is i i can't say i've heard of her no oh okay so she was uh a feminist back in the time back in the day and um she helped create birth control and birth control clinics and that sort of thing so, it, you know, just in conversation, you would think, right, well, this woman's a progressive person. But, you know, wait for it. She was also into eugenics. And she actually created birth control in order to stop the misfits and degenerate classes from breeding. So that, you know, puts a different kind of colour on all of that. That's horrible. So um, the parallel story to the one that um, Angela tells in the documentary is hosted by Adam Pearson, who has a, um, I think he has an NF1 uh, genetic disorder. So that means that his body produces benign tumours. And um, he investigated the treatment of mentally ill people in the older times and how they were treated and barred from society and how they were... Um, they were stopped from being able to interact and uh, be members of society because the idea was that if they were to mix with society, they would essentially destroy uh, the superior race. They would weaken the superior race. So that was episode one. And then episode two, um, the show begins snooping through the archive diaries of another eugenicist, Reginald Gates. Um, and he's also the founder of Mankind Quarterly. I don't know if I mentioned this in the um, review of Superior, but Mankind Quarterly is a eugenics uh, journal for researchers. Um, and it's still going on today. I don't want to give them a plug to say go and look at them, because don't. But they are still, they are still pub publishing to this day. Um, and so he was obsessed, this man, with skin colour and determining how racially mixed people are. So especially back in the day when Britain owned all the colonies and so on, uh, especially in Africa and things like that, there was obviously um, a fair amount of mixing going on. Not entirely sure whether it was consensual, um, but the, he wanted to determine how racially mixed people were. Because he thought that racial mixing would result in, well, number one, the weakening of the white race. And also, he thought that each race was a different species of human. And therefore, uh, the mixing of, of races would result to deformed and mentally impaired people, which we obviously know is not true. Uh, the episode then moves on to sterilisation. And this was very common in countries like in America, the countries in Africa and India, and then they focus in on India, and 55,000 people in India were sterilised in one single year, 
And this was following the famine back in the 60s and 70s, where the president of America at the time, Lyndon Johnson, said to the people running India that if they wanted help with the famine and just basic survival, that they would have to control their population. So um, as a result, 8 million people in total in India, which I know it's a really big population anyway, but 8 million people, that's quite a lot of people, were sterilised. Um, and I think that was over just over 10 years. So the conversation arises after that surrounding the role of eugenics and sterilisation, specifically as the people who were getting sterilised were mostly poor people. Um, so then there was that and then it went on to another bit. Fun fact, people in LSE, so that's the London School of Economics, they were given money, uh, they were giving money to academics for having kids to kind of thank them for supporting uh, the breeding of intelligent people because it was believed that like intelligence was passed on from parent to parent. Um, Wait, when, when was this? This wasn't recent. Th- this was, it? was recent. This was recent because they interviewed a lady who got given money for having kids. Um, I'm saying 70s here. Wow. That's I know. madness. I know, it's so funny because it's like you guys are supposed to be smart and yet you guys are the people (laughs) giving money for smart people having kids. I think it was £50, I think that's what they said, they got £50. I don't know about inflation, whether that's a lot of money, but 50 quid for a kid. Just to say that, oh, well done, you've... You may or may not have made an... I I really hope that those (laughs) those people were not very smart. (laughs) (laughs) it's <laughs> <laughs> a waste of to money to prove a point <laughs> yeah to prove a point absolutely um and then at the end of the episode Angela met with a scientist whose name was Professor Stephen Kennedy of the Intergrowth 21st Project um and he looked okay he looked like a very kind and caring man but there was like a slight hint of crazy that I got that was the vibe that I got from him and he explained that um, they monitored babies from early on in pregnancy of healthy women and regardless and irrespective of the wealth or the education of mothers, and this was like a world wide world study, all the babies pretty much hit the generic milestones of growth and development at similar times, thus indicating that health of a mother is more important in intelligence and development than race, wealth or ethnicity. So running alongside this story was uh, the personal side of eugenics where Adam Pearson spoke to women of the Roma community who had experienced sterilisation against their will due to their backgrounds, where society don't want more Roma people in the community. Um, He also spoke to a deaf family about you can now screen for deafness in your your embryos and also just the the use of screening embryos pre-IVF implantation in general. Um, for genetic studies, um, and whether screening for certain diseases and then not implanting the embryo is a form of eugenics. Um, So if you have a disease as well yourself, uh, would you screen it out to make sure your children don't get it? Um, And then the, the bit that kind of keeps me up at night was they spoke to a guy who I got really weird vibes from, but he claims that in a few years will be able to determine the future intelligence of people from their embryos, from like an embryo level, um, and that 
because we know that in the future we'll be able to know this, we should be setting up legislation now to ensure that people don't um, manipulate this in the future. And so that was quite interesting because on one side he was saying that they have certain gene markers that they think are linked to intelligence. But of course, we don't know whether that's linked. Um, is, is it correlation or causation? You know, that's yet to be determined. Um, but either way, it's, it's, I think it's weird that people are investigating this. You know, like, yeah. when you write your research project and you're thinking about researching things, what's the end goal? Like, for me, I'm looking at natural products and, you know, their effect in, bi like, as bioactive compounds and how they work with the hope that maybe one day they can be used in, you know, everyday life and we can help people live their best lives. But I don't quite understand why you ever need to know how intelligence is linked to genes. Like, what are you going to do? upregulate those genes in people like what's the end goal do you want to make everybody intelligent or do you want to use it in order to screen out and differentiate people and segregate them further so yeah I don't trust people who do <laughs> who do research on that kind of stuff because I'm like what's the end goal you know yeah I watched um I watched something similar actually but it was on gene editing and they were saying how you can use it to make to, like designer babies or whatever and they made some really good points in there actually um because there are like very few but there are a few clinics in america where if you go for ivf they will tell you things about your embryos that they shouldn't really tell you like they can tell you if it's gonna have blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes oh my gosh let you choose like that which seems very ethically wrong <laughs> yeah I agree and it, like that's already happening um mm. and then of course there's the whole um CRISPR mutation that happened you know in China where that man oh yeah was illegally zero ethics um involved just um mutating twin babies to give them what are they, CCR5 mutated genes? Yeah, HIV. Yeah, HIV again, again, the only way you would know if that's worked is if you have to, like, forcefully sort of give them HIV to see if it works or not, and you're not going to do that. No. And then also, he he created random mutations in the in the children, whereas the known mutation is, like, a Delta 32 yeah. But he just created random mutations in these girls. So my question oh. is, what about them now? They now have a weird mutation. How do we know that by mutating these children's genes, how do we know that long-term that's not going to affect the population? You know? Like, what if those girls have, like, ten kids each that, like, go off around the world and, like, have kids with other people and then, like, everybody has this weird mutated gene I don't know I'm overthinking it <laughs> but anyway <laughs> that was a good discussion we're now inviting onto the podcast another guest because we're the guest kind of podcast now yay um we're inviting we're inviting um 
a scientist I see every day, pretty much every day in the lab, we always say hi, and I want to know more about what she does and who she is. Introducing Stacey Vincent. Hello. Hello, how are you? <laughs> yes, very well, thank you. Very well. So, like I said before, we work pro like in terms of location very close together, um, but I don't think we've ever had a conversation really about your work. So would you like to share uh, what you do um, in the lab right now? You are a PhD student um, and just give us a little bit of background into who you are. Sure. So um, I'm just starting the third year of my PhD and I work on a plant microbiome. So I was listening to uh, your guys' interview with, with Diane from before and she talked, I think, a little bit at the end about sort of the environmental microbiomes because she's much more from the clinical side um, and that is me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, but I work specifically on... Um, plant phylosphere microbiomes, which is basically sort of like the leaves, stem, anything that's that's aerial, that's above ground, which is a bit of bit more of a mystery because they, they know a fair bit about the rhizosphere, which is sort of the, the interface between the soil and the roots, because it's it's a sort of very nutrient rich area. It was one of the, the first ones that they studied, but they're sort of just starting to really get into the phylosphere microbiome, what's actually going on with the leaves. So I'm I'm currently studying studying that. And I originally did my my undergraduate degree at Royal Holloway. I then stayed for an MSc and again all all plant work <laughs> worked um <laughs> on chromatin remodeling for my MSc. Then I worked uh, in another lab, I did a second master's, I did an MRes at Imperial College London. Oh. And I worked in a plant pathology lab there. And now I'm sort of doing this, which is sort of in the middle because it's it's sort of uh, part bench-based and part bioinformatics-based. Wow. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Um, obviously you can't speak about your research itself and the answers and things like that because obviously you want to publish <laughs> and things like that. But um, what led you to investigate the um, microbiome of plants? What um, Was there anything that inspired you to move into this area of science? Well, I, 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 it might come as a bit of a surprise that when I started doing my, my undergraduate degree, I actually really, really wanted to do neuroscience. Oh, wow. <laughs> One module later where we had to study kidneys, and I decided <laughs> I would never, ever work with an organism with kidneys again. <laughs> but I'd always been um, quite passionate about sort of, you know, climate change and, and those sort of issues, mm. uh, you know, food sustainability, but had always seen myself more as a molecular biologist, and it sort of became it sort of clicked with me one one day in, in a lecture that actually doing plant molecular biology was a way you can sort of address those bigger issues looking at the the smaller stuff in the lab um and I realized that that's sort of what I what I really wanted to do I think in terms of the the the, the actual microbiome work it's very it's, it's going to sound like such a cop-out answer but it's very on vogue at the moment yeah um which 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 was was great as well, and because I had done sort of bioinformatics and I had done plant pathology, so I'd looked at, at um, sort of the, the computer science aspects of things, and also looked at plant microbe interactions before. I sort of saw this PhD as being the perfect 
sort of blend of the two. So yeah. I could I could do both bioinformatics and and also look at plant microbe interactions, which is what I was really interested in. Yeah, I mean bioinformatics isn't it's not a course that's um, available at our university. So is a lot of what you know self-taught or? That's a good question. Um, I, I suppose yes, but I don't, I, I have to say, I think a, a, a lot of people are quite scared of it, but it's the same when you learn sort of a new lab technique, you sort of go around, you find papers, see how they've done things, see if you can reproduce that and sort of have those very same conversations you'd have with your PI if you, if it's sort of going over your head a bit, I think. So it's it's not, I wouldn't say the approach is really any different than it would be to any, any bench work that you do. Wow. Yeah, because I'm definitely very scared of bioinformatics. <laughs> um, a lot of people are. <laughs> yeah. Like, even just modelling proteins, I get very stressed about it. So um, I can only imagine <laughs> what it is that you do. Well, to be fair, I'll take my hat off to you because any protein work terrifies me. <laughs> I'm pure nucleic acids, my side. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what's kind of next? Obviously you're very close to finishing your PhD. And can I just say, actually, everybody who I've ever spoken to about you only has, like, only sings your praises. They're always like, she should be a postdoc already, like, because she knows so much. And if anybody has any problems, they'll come straight to you about things like that. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> so do you see yourself staying in academia and, you know, using that, skill that you have and that talent that you have of helping other people and being so good at it to maybe working in lecturing and being a PR yourself? The, the short answer is that I, I would absolutely love to. Um, I'm obviously it's it's I know it's extremely extremely competitive and very difficult to get into so I've always tried to kind of keep an open mind about not being completely focused on staying in academia but that would certainly be my sort of plan a and the, f the further down the, the road I go I think the more I would really really like to stay um, and, and and eventually start up my own research group but I guess we'll just have to see but yeah ultimately that's definitely what I'd like to do I'd love to even if I ended up in the industry stay in sort of research and development and that part of it for sure it's definitely where I'm I'm passionate and I, and I am quite passionate about training people as well. So on that topic when you mentioned even if you were to work in industry and things like that um bioinformatics is highly is a highly sought out skill that's not good grammar but basically a lot of people in industry really like people who know bioinformatics <laughs> and therefore I think the the scope of jobs that you can go into after your PhD are so varied and so uh such a broad spectrum how what, is there any advice that you would give to somebody with such a wide skill set um in choosing their path of where they want to go next in their career because I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast um, have done a biology degree or a biomedical degree and things like that and these kind of degrees give you a very broad uh, wide range of skills and sometimes that can make life a little bit harder because everyone says oh well you can do anything and it's like yeah but I still don't know what I want to do. Yeah definitely I think um, in, in terms of sort of uh giving giving general advice I would say don't 
be afraid of being a jack of all trades because I think that this is this is a very cynical kind of outlook, but from having seen other people sort of go through their PhDs and job hunt and things afterwards, I don't I don't think it's enough and decreasingly less so to quote just be a molecular biologist anymore. I think that you're increasingly more expected to have sort of statistical analysis skills, some even some very, very basic coding skills and that's not to to put people off at all but I think it's to sort of try and decompartmentalize those things and see them as as being all part of the process now because it's it's just not what it used to be I mean there's this sort of pipetting robots everywhere now and um, I think that when you're sort of doing the, the bioinformatics and the coding and that side you're you're never going to be surplus to demand. So I'd say just don't don't be scared of being a jack of all trades. It's, it's, it's a really good thing. In terms of not being sure what you want to do, uh, this is this is more specifically with staying in, in, in research. I think people see, especially if they do a master's, they sort of see that as putting them into a box of some kind, but it's not. If you did sort of a, a biomed master's, I don't see any reason why you couldn't, do a, a plant science PhD afterwards. I think it's about trying to get more skills than it is uh, trying to put you into a box of some description. So I, I would I would say just don't be so scared that this is it and this is the brush you're tarred with for life because I, I just don't think it's true. I think people are more likely to look at your CV and think, okay, what techniques can this person do? How adaptable is this person to, to new challenges? How much of an independent thinker are they? more than okay what was their thesis on what model organism did they use that's a brilliant answer thank you so much (laughs) no problem yeah that's really good and on that topic of um robots that pipette things i'm really hoping that a robot comes out very soon that does my western blots for me because (laughs) that would be so helpful (laughs) I'm sure they exist. They they probably do exist somewhere. They probably but do. Yeah, probably prohibitively expensive. But again, going back to coding, because I, I think it's even outside of science, I think it's something that people should be doing more of from day one. They should be doing more of it in schools from day one because they can have a robot for everything soon, but they'll they'll never have people to pro sorry never have robots to program the robots anytime soon. So I think it's just a skill that will never go out of fashion um so my final question right um is that you are an inspiration to many in the lab who is your inspiration in science been oh wow that's so sweet um and and a, a very very good question um certainly my the 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 so my my first master's my msc the academic that i worked with um and there was also a postdoc that I worked with very, very closely. And I think that that experience really helped sort of, um, what's the word, allow me to sort of cut my teeth, if that makes sense. Because I think I was encouraged a lot um, and criticised a lot, but not, not not at all in a bad way, but more just sort of made clear that this is what the standard is, this is what you should be thinking about, and it's things that I would never have thought about before. And I think that it's sort of stayed with me and and, and certainly helped me a lot. Um, in terms of sort of 
bigger sort of scientific role models, um, struggle to really think of, of one particular one off the top of my head. Obviously, the, the, there's there's an awful lot, um, but I definitely like when people sort of engage with the public a lot. So somebody like Paul Nurse would be a really good example because mm. I think it's a sort of a prime example of how you can be a very prominent scientist without patronising members of the yes. public and actively trying to th make things more accessible because I think that's that's a lot of what we should be doing particularly with sort of the, the anti-vax culture that we sort of live in now I think there needs to be a, a better line of communication between the scientific community and the public. Absolutely such a good point. Uh, Sonia did you see the Paul Nurse lecture when he came to our university. I did, I, I went. Did you go? Yeah, it was really good. I was just, I thought of that. <laughs> yeah, I also applied for a PhD in his lab and I got rejected, but it was a good time anyway. <laughs> no, his talk was really good and I really liked the way, um, the way he did it. I think his whole vibe is very much... It's very much it's not pretentious at all. Whereas you see, you meet some other lecturers um, or researchers who have done like mediocre work, but they they're so like hard to talk to, and they very much make you seem as if you know you're you're very insignificant to them, um, and that only puts you off research. Whereas I think people like Paul Nass really make you interested in research, um, and trying to answer those questions. You know, definitely, yeah, I completely agree. I think um, one one bit of advice I would always give to people who are sort of um, looking for PhD supervisors, and fortunately this isn't anything I've had first-hand experience of, but certainly have heard from other people, from other institutions, even from other countries, is everyone will sort of tell you always to look at their publication history and things like that, and the size of their lab, etc., and the size of their grants and things, but I think having a supervisor who you're comfortable approaching is really, really important because you, you have a very sort of odd relationship with your, um, with any sort of research supervisor because they sort of, they see you fail all the time. They see, you know, they, they see a side of you that maybe even your, your parents don't see. And I think it's important that you should feel like you can ask them a question when you, when you, when you need to. Absolutely. That's so important when you're looking for PhDs because, yeah, like you said, you can go to a prestigious, well-known lab, but if you don't get that, it's all about the vibe, really. Um, another thing is that yeah. if you can reach out to somebody who's already in the lab um, and try and talk to them, that's also really helpful. We've been receiving a few emails recently and I may or may not have been asked that person back what Harry Potter character they would be if they were one. Because it's nice to know, you know, we want Hermione's in our team. We don't want Draco Malfoy's. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's really good to um, know who you're working with as well. Great. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's three to four years of your life. You should, you mm. should enjoy it. You know, that's something, again, it's not just about sort of climbing the ladder for your career it's a big chunk of your formative years and I think you know you you should feel entitled to have some fun while you're doing it and, and and be passionate about what you do without being so bogged down about you know what journals you're getting into these things are all obviously of course they're very important but it's 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 still your life yeah that's 
Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing and imparting your wisdom onto our podcast. Um, We always finish the podcast with some silly stories, something stupid we've done in the lab. And you've been there for three years now. I'm sure, despite everything (laughs) that I've said before, have you done anything silly or crazy in the lab that you are okay to share with us on the podcast? Wow. Um, I can't really think of anything that I did. I mean, nothing that's, that's <laughs> too that's too amusing, to be honest with you, other than, you know, the, the standard pipetting the wrong thing in. That happens a lot. Um, I, I was listening to, to, to you guys with, with Diane, and I have to confess, though, that despite being a, a someone who works with on plant microbe interactions I also hate the smell of agar <laughs> um but it weirdly makes me hungry oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is I don't I don't <laughs> like the smell but it makes me hungry um one thing that I I would I think is quite funny off the back of that is I've started working with a bacterium called bacillus subtilis which is actually it's actually very good for you Um, I I didn't even have to fill out a kosh form to order it Um, but it smells so bad that I can't bring myself to eat probiotic yogurt again even (laughs) though I know it's really good for you it it smells awful it smells like a cross between like old socks and gone off parmesan I would say Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's it's actually just permanently put me off probiotic yogurt (laughs) Oh no, that's horrible. Um, I do also know of somebody who once loaded an enormous gel and then put it on the wrong way, wrong way round. Oh no! <laughs> they spent about probably about forty-five minutes loading this enormous gel. It probably taken sort of you know forty-five minutes before that to set, um, and it was you know one of those ones with double lanes. Yeah, and I plugged it in the wrong way round oh, and the no. dye just gone straight off the gel well maybe half of the samples would be okay <laughs> yeah yeah just just have to tip it around the other way oh my gosh that's okay wow <laughs> that's not good that's always something I get scared of and I always like double check and like then like triple check Another thing that's recently been happening to me is I run gels and then I go away and then I'll come back and realize that I forgot to press run yeah, and so I've, I've done that before. <laughs> I've done that. And there was a one day in this is when I was at Imperial. I think it was my very final day in the lab, and the only thing I had to do was um, cut some samples off and put them in the water bath for ninety seconds. But the water bath took a really, really, really long time to heat up, and. I had forgotten to switch it on when I got there, so I ended up sitting there for about an hour and a half to two hours just waiting for the water bath to heat up. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And Sarah's just been at home writing her thesis this week? Yeah, um, that's pretty much what I'm going to be doing from now on. So, fun times. I'm nearly finished, though. It's really exciting. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Fab, thank you for coming onto the podcast. I wish you luck in your final year. And uh, Sarah, get back to writing. Thank you, guys. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, 
Radio Public and Breaker. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are Control and Variable. You can also follow us on our own personal Twitters of Sonia underscore Shinmar and Sarah Muscat with a three on the end. Because Sarah Muscat one and two were taken. Yes. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please leave a review. And we hope you enjoyed it. You'll hear us again next time. <laughs> Bye.